Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The head of the U.N.'s weather agency is saying Cyclone Edai is shaping up as one of the worst ever disasters to hit the Southern Hemisphere. It hit Mozambique late last night. Mozambique's president estimates a thousand people are dead with 30 miles of land underwater. Further inland, Zimbabwe's president, Emerson Mnangagwa, says that 98 people are dead with 200 missing. Zimbabwe's healthcare system is in no shape to deal with the natural disaster. Chronic shortages and low pay have resulted in a response from civil society in Zimbabwe. A group of prominent Zimbabweans have started an effort to buy hospital supplies. It's called the Save Our Hospitals Initiative. Hopewell Chingongo is a Zimbabwean journalist and filmmaker, and he's made two documentaries on healthcare-related issues in Zimbabwe, and he is the organizer of the new Save Our Hospitals initiative. And thanks a lot for joining us, Hopewell. Thank you very much for having me. Can you explain what, how bad hospitals are right now in Zimbabwe? It's, it's something I, I think people will find astounding. Ah, the situation in our public hospitals is so bad that uh, the biggest hospital in Zimbabwe called the Harare Hospital, which is a central hospital and referral place, only has two maternity theaters. They were built in 1977 and only one of them is working. These uh, maternity theaters are supposed to service uh, 1,400 mothers a month, and uh, a third of those 1,400 mothers require cesarean uh, section operations, and it's not happening because they are not working. There was an appeal by the head of pediatrics at that hospital, uh, Dr. Aza Mashumba, and she... um, she her the video of her um, got a lot of hits and people really saw her begging for supplies and help. Um, how is how has that affected what what you're doing here? Um, you know, I spent last year making a documentary film uh, at the biggest hospital in 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 Arare. It was on mental illness, and I saw firsthand how bad the situation was. Nurses will end less than three hundred. U.S. dollars, having to take money out of their pockets to pay for drugs for their patients because they were afraid that they would relapse if they don't get the drugs. What Dr. Um, Azamashumba did was to tweak the conscience of the nation and the international community because the ordinary people who don't use these hospitals did not have a proper understanding of how bad things were. Cameras are not allowed in Zimbabwe's government hospitals. So unlike in countries like Britain and the United States of America, where news organizations can profile hospitals and schools in Zimbabwe, it just doesn't happen. And because of that, it was a closed-kept secret, unless if you use those hospitals. But even if you use them, you were not even allowed to capture pictures of what was happening in there. Now, there's been some uh, labor-related issues at the hospitals. You just mentioned the the salary is like $329 a month for a, for a beginning-level doctor in Zimbabwe's hospitals. And the nurses have been on strike. The, the strike around the beginning of this year made, made worldwide headlines. Um, and the government generally reacts harshly to these strikes and lets people go and fires people. They don't raise the uh, the salaries. Uh, they don't uh, they don't buy supplies. Uh, what's how do you describe what's going on here long term? 
Uh, what happened was that in 2017, November, uh, the current uh, government, the president uh, and his vice president, they were able to remove uh, the long-time dictator, Robert Mugabe. But what we have at the moment is that we don't have Robert Mugabe, but Mugabeism is still in place. When people try to protest, they are beaten down. When people raise issues that are legitimate, they are caricatured as uh, opposition regime change agents. When uh, we try to have some kind of discourse with the states to say that they could do things differently, we are called Western pawns. So it's really difficult. Uh, we, we expected change, but the change hasn't come yet. Now, your effort here, uh, the Save Our Hospitals initiative, uh, explain what you're doing and who is taking action with you. So what we're doing is uh, I've put together um, a a group of uh, professionals, uh, highly respected professionals that include human rights lawyer Beatrice Mtoetwa. It includes an ICA John, Dr. Solomon Gramatunu, uh, it includes a psychiatrist, a world-renowned psychiatrist who set up a system called the Friendship Bench, which is actually being tried out in New York, uh, Professor Shibanda. So what I'm trying to do um, is, is to conscientize people that we have a problem. And this team of uh, highly experienced people, uh, that is cha- it's chaired by an Anglican bishop called Bishop Chad Gandia, um, is going to use its currents, which is moral currents and respect that they have to try and attract uh, donations from Zimbabweans both home and abroad. But we're mainly looking at Zimbabweans that are living in the United Kingdom, that are living in Canada, in the United States, in South Africa, to help these uh, hospitals recapacitate themselves again. Because, for instance, they don't have bandages. They don't have simple things like... uh, um, better than they don't have uh, syringes. That's how bad the situation is. In uh, as Dr. Az explained when she was making a tearful plea, uh, children are put on cancer treatment and discontinued after one and a half weeks uh, because the medication would have run out. So that's how bad it is. And she was not exaggerating when she mentioned that she's only going to work to certify deaths. That's what it is. That's how bad the situation is. I'm talking with Hopewell Chingono. He's a Zimbabwean journalist and filmmaker. And we're discussing the new Save Our Hospitals initiative in Zimbabwe, which he's trying to put together to get uh, supplies. Eventually, you guys want to buy supplies for the hospitals and deliver them to the hospitals because you can't. You can't give the health system cash. Is this is this about the size of it? Um, that is correct. Um, ideally, we would have given uh, donations through the government, but there's been a breakdown of trust between the citizen and the government. So each time you mention the name government, people are not interested. Uh, people, in fact. Whenever I've posted something, even today when I was posting uh, stuff on my social media platforms, I kept getting the same question, is government going to be involved in this or not? Because if it's involved, we're not interested. It's it's shameful. It's not a good thing to have in any uh, civilized society. Ideally, government should be driving these sort of initiatives. And ideally, people should be trusting their government. But uh, we've reached 
uh, tragic situation where government is associated with corruption. When you mention government, the thing that comes to mind is theft, is embezzlement, it's corruption, it's incompetence. And uh, we are hoping that President uh, Emerson Mnangagwa, who has been in power for, for the past 14 months, will be able to turn around his ship because it is hitting rocks now. One of the things I saw in all the articles about this in on the in the internet in Zimbabwe was that the health of the the officials who are uh, in charge of government uh, they they all go outside the country for their health care. Uh, there's an entire class of people that are in charge that go outside the country for health care because they don't want to go to these places. That is very true. In fact, uh, you know, as far back as. I think the past 20 years, they've been going outside the country. They go mainly to South Africa. Robert Mugabe used to go to Singapore. He still does so using the taxpayers' uh, money. Um, The vice president was not well. He went to South Africa. Then he went to India. The the current president, when he was not well in in 2017, he went to South Africa. None of them use public health facilities. None of them at all. Uh, If ever they use local facilities, they'll be using um, uh, private hospitals. But they rarely use even private hospitals in Zimbabwe. They go abroad for treatment and their families go abroad for treatment. So if you don't have first-hand experience of how your people are living, how they are being subjected to this uh, inhumane treatment, you sort of uh, turn off, you're not interested in what uh, the healthcare professionals are saying. And I think that unfortunately that's where we are because the government leaders, they don't use these facilities. Uh, well, it, does the government have the money? It's, it kind of sounds like somebody has the money if they're going outside the country to, and spending a lot of money on, on their own health care, that they would have the health care for inside the country. Or are the sanctions so bad that the government generally doesn't have that much money? I've often argued that the sanctions are part of the problem. Um, and, and I've often argued that we know what we need to do to remove the sanctions. We just need to reform. Uh, we have a pathway to getting the sanctions removed. But, you know, there hasn't been any reforms, although they were they were promised 14 months ago when Robert Mugabe was removed. But the primary, the central issue to our economic demise is corruption, it's theft, it's embezzlement, it's abuse and mismanagement of, uh, of, of national resources. We found diamonds 10 years ago. Uh, billions were made. And it never got to the to the to the to the tax uh, to the taxmen. We have a situation where the government blue book the the uh, the book that they use for their packs. It says the government minister is supposed to get three cars. That that will cost in excess of about half a half a million U.S. dollars because they buy extremely expensive cars. If that money was used in the health care, if government ministers received one car and the, the money for the other two cars goes into the uh, um, health care, it would uh, make a huge difference. I think you read um, about Grace Mugabe buying diamond ring for uh, $1.5 million. That would pay a salary for 1,500 Zimbabwean doctors at, 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 at today's salaries that they get. So it's it's to do with mismanagement of resources. Zimbabwe is endowed with a lot of natural resources, but they are mismanaged. 
Well, where do you think the Save Our Hospitals movement is going here? Um, what are your initial steps here? How can you get it up and running so that people can get some supplies in the hospital? Um, to, today, we got a list uh, of the things that are immediately, urgently required material, the drugs, the consumables from one of the biggest hospitals in Harare. What we are now uh, looking for is for donations. If anyone is listening in Chicago and they want to help, um, they don't have to give us the cash. They can just get in touch um, with me or with any of the hospitals and uh, they will be told what is needed in those hospitals and they can pay direct to the supplier. Most of the suppliers are in India where our hospitals buy their drugs so they can pay pay direct to the supplier and whatever they would have paid for would be delivered. And uh, my email address is hopewell2 at post.harvard.com All right, that's hopewell2 at post.harvard.edu. And uh, thanks a lot for joining us, Hopewell Chingono, and uh, good luck with the Save Our Hospitals initiative there in Zimbabwe. We'll we'll keep in touch and we'll find out more in, in the future. Thank you very much for having me on your show. Coming up after the break, we'll talk with an attorney who works on indigenous rights in Mexico. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. We're going to continue with the Eyes on Mexico series that we started with the Posen Family Center for Human Rights at the University of Chicago. They have an ongoing series of speakers they're bringing in and having to discuss Mexico. And Susan Zesch is here. She's executive director of the Posen Family Center for Human Rights. Good to see you. Thanks for having us, Jerome. The last time we were kind of talking about hardball politics in Mexico, And today we're going to do something a little different and go to a different place in Mexico, Yucatan. And I've been a few places in Mexico, and I always get a feeling I know where I'm at when I'm talking about Mexico. But when Yucatan comes up, I feel like that's another place. And Yucatan is another place um, for a lot of reasons. Now, a lot of your listeners have probably been there because they've been to what's called the Mayan Riviera from Cancun down the coast. But... Yucatan is a whole peninsula made up of three different states. And in the 19th century for a while, it wasn't even part of Mexico. It was its own independent republic. And so the culture, the geology, the food are all different. I mean, Mexico has lots of regional variations, but the Yucatan is one of the most distinct areas. And we're going to talk about some of the marginalized communities in the Yucatan now with Jorge Fernandez, who you've brought. He is with Indignacion, and that's a Yucatan NGO. He's been there 10 years, and it's great to meet you, Jorge Fernandez. Thank you for coming. 
Muchas gracias por la invitación. Thanks for the invitation. Tell us a little about your work on the Yucatan Peninsula and the marginalized communities that you work with. What does Indignación do? Bueno, Indignación es eh, una organización no gubernamental que tiene aproximadamente 26 años, 26, 27 años de haberse creado. Eh, trabaja, hace un trabajo peninsular, es decir, trabaja los tres estados de la península de Yucatán. Indignación es an NGO that's been around for 26 years and it works throughout the entire peninsula, the three states um, that comprise the Yucatán Peninsula and also in Tabasco, which is a bit to the south. Its work concentrates on the human rights of communities that are discriminated against and that suffer from various sorts of social exclusion. Yeah, we work with indigenous people, communities of diverse sexualities, women who've been victims of violence, journalists, and some work with international migration. I want to talk for a second about the work you do with indigenous communities. And it sounds like in the Yucatan, it faces issues that are similar to the rest of Central America with mining companies, with large multinationals, and, and conflicts over land rights and things of that nature. Is that what's going on in the Yucatan? Sí, yo creo que las que algunas de las problemáticas que enfrentan los pueblos, el, los, el, el, el pueblo maya, que es el que está asentado básicamente en la península de Yucatán, tienen muchas cosas en común con... The Mayan people in the Yucatán face problems that they have in common with other indigenous people in the Americas and also in other parts of Mexico. They are dealing with displacements, communities that are displaced. The displacements might be caused by various forms of investment that come in with industrial projects, mining, dams, wind farms, and other kinds of mega projects that impact the indigenous communities. I know you had a prominent case uh, with Monsanto. Tell us what happened with Monsanto and some of the indigenous communities. Bueno, en, eh, a, en, a finales del, 2000, del año 2012, eh, el gobierno mexicano, el gobierno federal, eh, le dio un permiso a la empresa Monsanto para sembrar aproximadamente 300,000 hectáreas de soya. In 2012, the Mexican government gave the Monsanto company a permit to do about 3,000 hectares of genetically modified soybean cultivation. This permit that Monsanto got really caused a lot of concern among the Mayan communities that were going to be impacted. Basically, the Mayan region where they were going to implement this project is dedicated to honey cultivation. It's a pre-Hispanic cultural practice. Basically, it has several kinds of impacts on the communities. It has caused deforestation. Also, toxic effects from pesticides that are sprayed from the air. Pollen contamination from transgenetic pollen, and it's also caused some of the lakes and lagoons and ponds to dry up in the area. So the communities organized themselves and presented a series of legal challenges to challenge the permit that the government had given to the Monsanto company. So the case went on for four years of litigation through the Mexican courts, and then it finally went to the Mexican Supreme Court, which decided that, yes, in fact, Monsanto had violated the rights of the indigenous communities to a prior consultation. It was an important case because it made visible a generalized problem that was happening to the Mayan communities across the Yucatan Peninsula. Una situación que se estaba dando en la península de Yucatán con los pueblos indígenas, ¿no? En, en este caso específico. Eh, 
eh, el, políticamente siempre se ha afirmado que en, en Yucatán o en la península de Yucatán eh, no pasa nada. It's politically convenient to say that Yucatán is free from some of the situations of violence that are seen in other areas of Mexico. So this case made visible a certain kind of violence that is usually hidden by the attention given to other kinds of violence that dominate in other parts of the country. So if we put it together with the struggles that other indigenous communities are having in other parts of Mexico, principally against mining companies and other extractive processes, then you can see what the violence is that's being done to the indigenous communities, the Mayan communities in the Yucatan. Was this a big step forward for the Supreme Court or for rights for indigenous people? Is that something that these other organizations are going to build on in the future? Sí, yo creo, yo creo que fue un, fue un caso importante, fue un caso políticamente importante porque eh, a nivel nacional e internacional, porque... So this was politically a very important case, both nationally and internationally, because you have an indigenous community that beat the Monsanto company in the highest court of the country. And so this case has a broad impact because of that victory. And legally it was important, but it also had some negative repercussions. The Mexican Supreme Court's definition of what a consultation meant was more restrictive than the international law interpretation of what the indigenous right to consultation is. The Supreme Court did not bring in a topic that's very important to indigenous communities, which is the right to self-determination, which is a concept that's really important, but it was not part of this decision. When we talk about originarios, which is the right to free determination. That topic did the Supreme Court. So it sounds like there's a lot more work to do within the, the legal framework of Mexico. Sí, yo creo que es una hay una deuda histórica con los pueblos indígenas, ¿no? Eh, me parece que que durante muchos años eh, los pueblos indígenas eh, han esta, se han enfrentado. Yes, there really is a historic debt to the indigenous communities, the original communities of Mexico. For many years, they were invisible attempts to homogenize them, and they lived in the worst economic conditions. And in the last 25, 30 years, it's been the indigenous communities that have felt the most negative impact of major economic development projects. So there is a pretty well-developed legal framework But there's a big difference between what laws are written on paper and what actually got applied in practice. Did the Mayans get their honey business back the way they wanted it? Did Monsanto have to stop with the soybeans? Sí, eh, ahí, eh, digamos que el daño que se causó ha sido un daño importante, sobre todo a, al medio ambiente, eh, al agua. Eh, The damage that was done was damage that was done in general to the environment and to water. But the government seems to be bent on an agro-industrial development project. And the consequences of the verdict against Monsanto has implications in this general project of the conversion to large-scale agricultural projects. Yes, it's true that um, Monsanto's activities were hurting honey production and it went down for a while. But the fact that they were ordered to stop planting these genetically modified soybean plants 
meant that, yes, the Mayan communities have been able to recover some of the prior level of honey production that they had. It's going to continue being a problem, however, because there isn't an emphasis and a focus on the preservation of these kinds of culturally traditional local agricultural techniques. Those still need a certain kind of protection that they haven't gotten. Local, que es muy importante para el desarrollo económico de, de, de esos pueblos. ¿no? I'm talking with Jorge Fernandez. He's an attorney with Indignación. It's a Yucatan NGO that works with marginalized communities in the Yucatan, including indigenous groups and LGBTQ groups. And I wanted to talk about LGBTQ work that you've been doing lately. Tell us about the scene there. What, what's it like? Bueno, eh, eh, a nivel nacional es es digamos una situación bastante dispar, ¿no? Porque hay ciertas zonas y ciertos lugares, por ejemplo, la Ciudad de México o algunos tres o cuatro estados más donde ha I can say that at the national level it's a pretty disparate system that in some parts of the country like Mexico City and three or four more states there really has been recognition of the rights of sexual diversity. So I can say that In the generalized part of the country, in the rest of the country, there really haven't been the advances that we would like to see in the recognition of sexual diversity. In fact, an example of this is that Mexico, after Brazil, has the second highest level in Latin America of hate crimes based on the expression of sexual diversity. And so we have to say Mexico is really a basically conservative country, and it's the conservatism that comes from some religions that translates itself into public policy in governmental entities. What kind of cases are you seeing in the Yucatan with LGBTQ rights? Sí, bueno, hemos, digamos que tenemos... Eh, eh, digamos cuatro tres o cuatro líneas de trabajo con, con, con las con el grupo de, de, de diversidad sexual que tiene que ver uno con el tema de pelear el reconocimiento del matrimonio igualitario We work three or four different areas of work. The first is the recognition of same-sex marriages. The second is the recognition of families formed by advanced reproductive techniques, that is, parents who form a family based on advanced forms of reproduction. The third is we deal with aggressions or assaults on people that are really hate crimes having to do with their sexual expression or sexual orientation. And the last is that we are trying to get the government to recognize the possibility of legally changing one's gender in your documents, identity documents, etc. Are there specific things in the several states you work in that are problematic on these issues? Aunque mantienen como, como algunos denominadores, denominadores comunes, podemos pensar que hay también ciertas diferencias. Por ejemplo, en Quintana Roo, una problemática importante tiene que ver con el desarrollo turístico. ¿no? Es decir, como todo el tema de, de, del impacto que se está generando por... por Looking across the Yucatán, there are different human rights problems that occur in the different states. In Quintana Roo, the impact of tourism and um, its impact both on the environment and on cultural practices of indigenous communities is one of the major problems. In the state of Yucatán, it's pretty similar to 
to that, only less so. And in Campeche, what we're really looking at are the impact on indigenous communities of large-scale agricultural projects and other sorts of medical projects like wind farms and other developments. Because one of the things that these three states have in common across the peninsula is that they have important traditional indigenous communities in them. One preoccupation we have is that we are seeing growing incidences of violence similar to other parts of Mexico. So if one looks at Cancun, it's beginning to develop some of the problems of violence that have been seen in other areas that have a lot of tourism in Mexico, such as Acapulco. Es decir, ya hay un síntoma de que la violencia de la que estaba había estado a salvo, digamos, la península de Yucatán también ya está ya está llegando, ¿no? I think one of the general perceptions out there is that if you're in a place that's more remote, there's more threats to people who are defending human rights, to journalists. Is that true in Yucatan? Because it seems like it's almost so remote that it doesn't have the traditional violence that other places do. Sí, bueno, eh, la, la, digamos que, que Yucatán eh, no es efectivamente y afortunadamente eh, eh, uno de los estados más, más, más violentos del país. Y eso garantiza cierta posibilidad de trabajar. Well, Yucatan is not, thankfully, one of the more violent states of Mexico. And so this gives us the possibility of being able to do the work of the defense of human rights. But we are dealing with three cases of attacks on journalists that have happened in the Yucatan. And the security problem and the vulnerability of human rights defenders is really generalized across the country. There are more human rights organizations in Mexico City, but the risk to people who work in human rights actually is much greater out in the other states. So we haven't seen such high risks in Yucatan and hope that we won't. But there are differences for people who work in the states that have the highest need for human rights protection because they are the most violent. I wanted to ask some questions about how the new president is doing on human rights. And AMLO came into office with a, a lot of expectations about uh, what he was going to do and how he was going to affect all sorts of human rights issues, not just the organized crime violence. What do you see when you hear AMLO talk these days? Bueno, eh, es, digamos que en estos que casi 70 días desde que tomó el, el, el poder, eh, creo que el nuevo presidente ha dado como señales ambiguas, ¿no? Nos parece, me parece que ha presentado algunas propuestas legislativas. Well, it's only been 70 days, so we can't really make a final judgment, but I have to say that there are ambiguous signals. The government has put in some good legislative proposals, including recognition of sexual diversity rights, of reproductive rights. There are some improvements in labor rights and the restoration of other rights that had been lost over the last several years. But there are also other policies that go against what the human rights organizations would like to see, and particularly the creation of this federal National Guard as a police force out of the army. It's especially troublesome because all of the international human rights agencies that have been to Mexico, including United Nations agencies, parts of the Inter-American Commission for Human Rights, have all agreed that the problem of public security in Mexico cannot be resolved by militarizing police functions. 
I was reading that AMLO criticized civil society groups who were speaking out against this and said that they were too conservative and they were too uptight. What was that supposed to mean? Bueno, creo que una de las cosas que que sabemos de que ya sabíamos de, de, del nuevo presidente es que tiene poca tolerancia a la crítica. Entonces, entonces de, eh, eh, la sociedad civil One of the things we know about the new president is that he has very little tolerance for criticism. Civil society has come up with criticisms about the non-militarization of security and also have questioned some of the president's appointments, as would be natural, to who he appointed as attorney general, some of the candidates that have been proposed for the Supreme Court. And these are criticisms that weren't very well received by the new president. One would think that given the problems previously under the previous administrations where we really criticized what was going on with their appointments, that these kinds of criticisms would be understandable, that we care about who gets these positions. The fact that this bothers him contradicts his statements that he said he wants to work with the people. But that's how AMLO has always been. He's a person who has a lot of internal contradictions. Pero ha sido así siempre López Obrador. No creo que una, una personalidad contradictoria en muchos aspectos. He seems to have a philosophy that he's going to look ahead and not look back. Does that worry you on the rights front? Sí, sí preocupa, por supuesto que preocupa porque el no mirar al pasado eh, significa dejar o puede significar dejar en una situación de impunidad graves violaciones a derechos humanos, ¿no? Y el no... It's worrisome because not looking at the past, not dealing with the past, means that you are preserving impunity for some very important crimes that have happened. To not correct prior corruption, to not go after large-scale violations of human rights, means that there is a danger of history repeating itself. It contradicts what he said in the campaign because a lot of his political appeal came from his promise to combat corruption. And if you don't deal with corruption in the past, then you're not really fulfilling those promises. Jorge Fernandez is an attorney with Indignacion. It's a Yucatan NGO that works with marginalized communities in the Yucatan. He's been here as a part of the Eyes on Mexico series with the Posen Family Center for Human Rights at the University of Chicago. The series is ongoing. You can check out their website for more information and presentations they're having at the University of Chicago. And thanks to uh, Susan Zesch, executive director of the Posen Family Center for Human Rights at the University of Chicago, for translating today. Thanks for joining us. Muchas gracias. Gracias por la invitación. Gracias, Susan, por la traducción. Thank you very much. Thanks for the invitation. Thanks to Susan for translating. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about the Good Food Expo. It's the America's oldest, largest expo focused on local and sustainable food. Stay with us. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The Good Food Expo is Friday and Saturday at the UIC Forum. The expo bills itself as America's oldest and largest expo focused on local and sustainable food. This is its 15th year. Jim Slama is the founder of Family Farmed, the organization that puts on the Good Food Expo. Good to see you, Jim. Glad to be here, Jerome. Thank you. Uh, Tell me the origin story of uh, the Good Food Expo. What were you doing 15 years ago? What was your idea? Sure. Well, we were, you know, a relatively small nonprofit then, and uh, we had just come off a major effort to uh, promote um, organic food nationally. And, you know, with that, I'm like, ah, you know, we should be promoting local food here here in Illinois. So uh, in looking to do a buy local campaign, I realized there was almost no local food other than at a few farmers markets. And so questioning that and why in a farm state we had almost no local food, uh, I recognized there was no gathering place of the tribe. And, you know, without a trade show, you don't really have an industry. So uh, Howard Tolman, who at the time was uh, uh, running Kendall College and actually rehabbing the Goose Island campus, gave us a half a floor. We had 50 farmers at tables. Paul Kahn and Whole Foods gave a keynote. 300 people showed up. Everybody's doing deals. I'm like, wow, this works. So uh, next thing we know, we next year we moved to Navy Pier. Uh, we created a, both a consumer show and a industry trade show. 2,000 people came, and uh, from there on, we just kept growing it. Now, it, it sounds terrific. And this year, you've got Walter Robb, the former COO of uh, Whole Foods, co-CEO of Whole Foods coming. And you've got Luke Sanders. He's with Farmer's Fridge, a, a fast-growing um, Chicago vending machine, salad vending machine thing that is getting invested in by Eric Schmidt's uh, venture capital fund, the Google guy. The, do you... Um, it's interesting that Amazon is buying out Whole Foods. Google is buying into our our vending machine vendor. Uh, we're we're thinking about getting one of these vending machines at our station. Oh, They're good to come in. Uh, but uh, is there like some kind of um, big money thing going on here that most people don't don't know about in the in the good food movement? Sure. Well, I, and then there are kind of like two strata, and you know the first strata is what we've all known for you know, over a decade is, you know, there's a lot of local farmers who have amazing products. Uh, You can buy them at farmer's markets. You can buy them, you know, through delivery services like Fresh Picks or others. Uh, And and we've been supporting producers like that for a long time. There's also a lot of emerging food artisans who, you know, start, you know, making products in their kitchen. And then the next thing you know, they're at a farmer's market and then they're starting to sell at, you know, Whole Foods or other supermarkets. And um, it, it's been great. And that part of the business has been growing very rapidly. In fact, they've all been growing very rapidly. Uh, and honestly, when you look at the food industry, you've got big food, which is shrinking. And, you know, if you look at the numbers, it's tens and tens of billions of dollars that they've lost in sales. They've lost significant percentages of market share. And what's growing is innovative, clean label, organic, non-GMO, face of a farmer on it, all of these kind of things, which is kind of what our industry represents. So um, when 
business is faced with losing market share and also seeing another whole side of the industry growing significantly, they're going to invest. So whether it be, you know, uh, Eric Schmidt investing in Farmer's Fridge, and by the way, Luke is going to be getting the good food business of the year. He founded Farmer's Fridge because, you know, he had a delivery route in a uh, business. He was in a sales business 10 years ago, and he couldn't find good food anywhere, and he was sick of eating Subway six times a week. So he's like, we need vending machines with good food, and he did. And, you know, now he's killing it. He's got a couple hundred vending machines across Chicago, now Milwaukee, and he's looking at going into other markets. That's innovation. And, you know, honestly, if Eric Schmidt and company will uh, lead a $30 million round to take this across the country, he's sourcing local product, uh, he for things that have uh, typically higher levels of pesticides, he's using organic. You know, he added like Jenny's Tofu. Jenny's a good friend of ours uh, at, as a standalone product in these fridges. Now he's got bowls, other things. That's innovation. And, you know, and quite honestly, to really scale up, you need capital. So I can see why uh, capital is moving into this space. And that being said, I think NGOs like us and others – you need to be vigilant in holding their feet to the fire and holding some accountability and building more transparency into the system. Now, in the effort to get everybody good food, are things like Walmart, they carry all these organics now, and, and there is a industrial organics out there that comes from, I don't know, northern Mexico, like all our food comes from. Uh, is, the, the, um, is, that a, is that cutting into the local aspect of this? Well, no question about um, the fact that, you know, organic keeps growing and it's, you know, steadily grown on average probably 15% a year for 30 years. Now it's a $50 billion industry. And that being said, uh, it is cheaper to grow in climates where you don't need greenhouses or, you know, buildings here to do indoor ag. And, you know, and even with the shipping costs, the carbon footprint's probably lower growing in places that are further away than here because of the high energy costs in heating and also in lighting in the wintertime. So, um, yes, Walmart, Whole Foods, others, Costco's a huge seller of organic food. They are in part because our customers want it. And we can't produce enough of it at scale in this part of the country to really meet the scale and price to really meet the demand. And, you know, and there is justifiable criticism at times with organic saying that it's elitist because it's expensive and it is more expensive. And if we're trying to get good food to everybody, then I think, you know, our opinion is let's get good food to everybody and let's get it at a price that's affordable. That being said, let's build more transparency. And so people whose values say, I want local, I want to know that formal farmer, I want more accountability and maybe regenerative, which is kind of a new trend, which is, you know, let's build the soil. Let's make sure that the biodiversity of the ecosystem is healthy. And that's a new trend, too, that's starting to take off where, you know, consumers are, are demanding more of those kind of things. I'm talking with Jim Slama. He is the founder of the Good Food Expo. It is Friday and Saturday at the UIC Forum. And one of the things you're going to talk about um, is the Chicago Good Food Purchasing Policy and its update. And when it comes to getting good food to everybody, this is kind of a big deal. This is this would be very important. There's not a lot of cities that have a good food purchasing policy, and Chicago's one of them. No doubt about it. 
you know, and kudos to Mayor Emanuel and his administration. A couple of years ago, they recognized that this is an opportunity to get more good food into city agencies. You know, eight or nine years ago, uh, when Mayor Daly was at our Good Food Expo at um, the Cultural Center on Michigan Avenue, um, you know, the city announced, hey, we're starting to source local food for schools. We were Chicago Public Schools' partner in that. They started doing it, and, you know, now they're buying millions of dollars of local vegetables. They were the first large-scale school district to source antibiotic-free chicken, and they're buying it from Miller Poultry in uh, in Indiana. Uh which is a good thing. Building on that, then there's a national group uh, that is promoting these good food purchasing standards, which include things like local, you know, other values, whether it be, you know, fair trade or, you know, how workers are produced, other things. And so they started working with the Chicago Food Policy Council and others, and they passed this law through council last year. Uh, now other agencies are looking, how can we start sourcing more good food, whether it be, you know, human services or hopefully O'Hare. And actually, I know O'Hare now has Rick Bayless. They've got Paul Kahn, who's a real champion of, of local food. So more and more of the restaurants there, too, are producing uh, or purchasing good food. Let's see it across the board in all the city agencies in Chicago. And that's part of what this panel is going to do. It about. sounds like the devil's in the details on that. Implementing something like that is change for people and people don't necessarily change too fast. Well, you know, it's it's all about getting buy-in in the agencies and, uh, and it's a process. And that's something that um, especially getting them multiple agencies on a panel at the Good Food Expo talking about how you're going to do it helps because then they're going on record as to these are our plans. One of the popular things at the Good Food Expo every year are the different chefs that you bring in. You're uh, giving an award to uh, Jason Hamill this time. Uh, how important is that in changing our food culture is having these people who cook uh, demonstrating uh, the right way to go? Well, no question. Honestly, um, chefs are rock stars in our culture. And, you know, you see them on TV a lot. Do you and think it makes people cook, though? I don't know. It, or do they just know, want to go to My mother loves restaurant. to watch, I must say. And I think a lot of people love to watch. But, you know, Bob over here is in the studio, and he watches, and then he cooks. So it really all <laughs> depends on uh, the person. But, um, you know, my girlfriend Carla, she's gotten to be a much better chef by watching Top Chef because she learns all these tricks that she actually applies to her cooking. So I, I do believe that it helps. You know, we're blessed. Jason Hamill from Lulu's getting, Lula is getting our Chef of the Year Award Friday. He's doing a demo. Uh, you know, we've got a couple of chefs focusing on grains. Sandra Hole from Floreal, uh, Dave Miller from Baker Miller. We've got Erling Wu Bauer uh, from Pacific Standard. Uh, and uh, Tony Montuano from Spiaggia, you know, who's and all these folks are farm to table. Uh, uh, Carolyn Diaz, and this is actually an interesting pair, pairing. She's from Terzo Piano and the Art Institute. She actually won Barilla's uh, international competition for pasta making coming out of Chicago, first woman ever. Wow. And uh, so she's going to be making a Barilla single ingredient pasta, which is a legume and a legume based pasta, which has higher levels levels of protein. And talk about, you know, clean label, it's got one ingredient. Wow. So in, in the Good Food Expo is traditionally the first day on Friday is um, industry oriented. And the second day on Saturday is public oriented and it's free. Yes. 
and people can register to go. Uh, that that would be the polite thing to do. Right. Yeah. Then we get your email address. You know, let people know what's going, and it's easier, much easier to get in if you've pre-registered on Saturday. But you know, we want to make it the People's Expo. Um, you know, honestly, we used to charge, and then Ticketmaster added ten dollars of fees to the ticket to get in, and we're like, you know, we're just not going to do that to people. So we made it free. You know, we get money from sponsors and vendors and other things. But you know, we've got you know one hundred twenty-five plus vendors, some really awesome food artisans, some farmers. If you want to chat with farmers, maybe sign up for a CSA. Great demos. We've got and Blue Cross is our partner on this, and you know a big focus is uh, good food is good medicine, which is an awesome trend going on in America because people I think increasingly are recognizing that um, what you put into your mouth ends up having significant impl- implications on your health. So we've got five workshops on good food is good medicine. Some of the leading physicians, nutritionists, others in Chicago who are real experts in that field are going to be talking about things like you know food and mood and others. So uh, And actually, we've also got a panel both days on hemp and CBD since this is such a hot topic uh, for <laughs> anybody who's interested in this, even though the forum would not let us sell any hemp products at the expo well. because it's controversial, <laughs> but you can at least learn about them. All right. Sounds great. Well, the, I hope that the Good Food Expo certainly outdraws the thing that comes in afterwards at the UIC Forum, the the Bacon Expo, the Bacon Fest. I I, I can't believe people pay money to go to Bacon Fest. you got to outdraw them. Uh, you know, we're rooting for it. Jerome, I knew, know you as a vegetarian definitely won't be showing up for Bacon Fest. But, um, you know, we've got lots of vegetables. We also have lots of other cool products. And uh, we hope uh, your guests will join us. Jim Slama is the founder of Family Farmed, the organization that puts on the Good Food Expo every year. It's its 15th year. It's Friday and Saturday at the UIC Forum. It is free. Thanks a lot for joining us. Good seeing you. Thanks, Jerome. Tomorrow on Worldview, we'll talk with the Arab American Action Network. They've got a new report on countering extremism right here in Chicago. We'll talk about that tomorrow on Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Jenny Friedland and Ashish Valentine for production assistance. And thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering. <laughs> I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. WBEZ.